You are listening to First Church Charlotte. Praise the Lord, everyone. I would like to say definitively, Mama needs Jesus. But Mama, I know you're watching right now. Uh, I love you. I don't have words. Uh, someday I may, and I'll try to get it all right when I have the words. But we love you. And to all the mothers here today, I want you to know that, first of all, you probably should have killed us when we were little. I think that was your first mistake. But since you made that mistake, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We honor you. Uh, We bless you in the name of the Lord. And to all of our mothers who are here in the house right now, I want to say to you, may God richly bless you. May God shine his face upon you. May the Lord prosper you in every venture. May the Lord protect you in every circumstance. And may you know divine peace in your life. And may the church say amen. Let's give our mothers a hand here before we go any further. Uh, Welcome to all of you who are joining us online. I know we are an extended church. We are partially here and partially virtual. Uh, To all of you, uh, we want to say to you that we feel like you're a part of our church. Um, We're glad you're joining with us. And my title has already been placed before you, and it is simply Mama Needs Jesus. And can the church say amen? Amen. All right, let's get started. Uh, I came across a quote that had the unique effect on me of the moment I heard it, I felt as though I had thought that many times but did not know how to say it so well. And it was written by William Tam, uh, Timaeus, and he, he says this, You don't really understand human nature unless you know why a child on a merry-go-round will wave at his parents every time the merry-go-round goes around. And why the parents every single time will wave back at him or her. There's something in our very nature, something in the construction of us, the manner of our being placed there by God, where we want to be a part. We don't want to do life alone. It's a terrible thing to try to do life alone. You weren't designed for that. You need other people. That's why God established a church in the earth. Can I have a big amen? You're not supposed to do life alone. You're not supposed to do ministry alone, and if you're trying to do either one alone, you're making a fundamental mistake that God never intended, and that might be why it feels so hard. Uh, We all of us need other people. We all of us need to be noticed. We all of us need to be uh, valued. Something breaks within when we feel as though we are invisible. Now, since today is Mother's Day, I I very much want to use the role of the mother, the selfless giver, the selfless nurturer, the person who doesn't have near as many problems uh, unless they take on yours, and then they suddenly don't have enough time because your problems are legion. Um, the, the, the role of uh, motherhood in our, in our personal stories and lives and testimonies, 
Uh, moms can oftentimes feel as though they're just supposed to do what they do, and they're not really valued for what they do. And I think, I think oftentimes moms feel like because they would rather be there for you than anywhere else in the world, we begin to live as though they have nowhere else they could be. <laughs> let, me, let me say that uh, a little bit differently. Uh, because they would rather be there for you than anywhere else in the world, we think that uh, they don't have a life of their own. They don't have thoughts of their own. They don't have hobbies of their own, desires of, the own, of their own, and uh, when in truth they absolutely do, but they chose you. This is part of the divinity that is shown in, uh, in the role of the mother, I believe, and I, I deeply believe this. I think we best understand uh, the heart of God when we see Him working uh, in this complete, generous nature, in this complete, selfless way. Um, I think there's few things in our life, a better picture of generosity, a better picture of selflessness than uh, the role of a mother. But as I said, they can often feel like they've become invisible. Uh, Nicole Johnson wrote a beautiful article entitled, I Am Invisible. I'm going to read a short passage of it to you. She writes, it all began to make sense. The blank stares, the lack of response, the way one of the kids will walk into the room while I'm on the phone and ask to be taken to the store. And inside I'm thinking, can't you see I'm on the phone? Obviously not. No one can see if I'm on the phone or cooking or sweeping the floor or even standing on my head in the corner because no one can see me at all. I am invisible. Some days I'm just a pair of hands, nothing more. Can you fix this? Can you tie this? Can you open this? Some days I'm not a pair of hands. I'm not even a human being. I'm a clock. What time is it? I'm a satellite guide. What number is the Disney Channel? I'm a car to order. Need to be there around 5.30, please. I was certain that these were the hands that once held books. <laughs> and these were the hands that, these were the eyes that once studied history. And this was the mind that once graduated. Uh, but now that's all disappeared into the peanut butter. <laughs> Never to be seen again. She's going, she's going, she's gone. Uh, moms can feel like they're invisible. Uh, and this isn't just a rare article. If you actually search, uh, you'll find there's a tremendous amount of expression uh, by uh, people who have been in this scenario, particularly by moms who feel like they are invisible. Here's an article by Sydney Waters. My name is Mom. <laughs> Some days I forget what my given name is. I forget that I'm a person outside of motherhood. My day starts and ends with endless mommies. Mom, mommy, mom. My thoughts are consumed with what's next. Whose needs comes next? What do I need to fix next? What bill are we going to pay next? Feed the kids. Tantrum city. Change the diapers. Get them dressed. Change the diapers again. Nurse the baby. Love on them. I haven't talked to another adult face-to-face -face besides my partner in over a week. I'm not even sure if I want to because of my anxiety, but I feel like I should. I go to the store and feel like a ghost walking through the aisles, completely unseen, unheard. I roam around lost, and sometimes I secretly hope someone will ask me if I need help just so I can interact with them. 
My time alone is rushed. I rush to shower. I rush to get tasks done. I rush to eat. I'm always running to get back to take care of everyone else. Over the years, you just get lost. Being a mom is hard. It's lonely. It's exhausting. Hopefully, all you kids are feeling increasingly guilty. (laughs) Hopefully, you're all just like, just shoot me now. I can't take much more of this. I want to say to all the moms here, and I want to speak as a lead pastor here at First Church, I want to say to all of our mothers, I want you to know that we see you. Thank you for that. No, we aren't there for the tottering drama. The movie you've watched so many times you hear it in your dreams. The endless small emergencies that in the moment actually weren't that small, but we see you. Your accomplishments touch our hearts. Your generosity teaches us something about God. Your patience is real-life holiness. Your inexhaustible loyalty represents the best thing about us all. And so today, along with everybody here at First Church, we rise up and call you blessed. So now let me take you to a sacred story given to you in the Scripture. It is like all sacred stories given in the Scripture. It shows the flaws of humanity. It does not show you perfect people. It shows you real people trying and failing. Now, why is this important? Because there is within the religious impulse of humanity a desire to pretend like we're close to perfect and we don't have flaws. We hide our sins, and perhaps we should. Uh, I don't know, but we should not hide them before God. Uh, Everybody here today needs mercy. Can I have a big amen? Um, you should you should you should distrust a church where people work particularly hard to hide their uh, real world struggles. You should distrust a preacher who always tries to make himself look good or spin it where he you know accidentally pats himself on the back. Uh, that is not a healthy church culture. That's a little bit toxic, and it leads us to a judgment culture rather than a grace culture. And here at First Church, we want to have a grace culture. So let me be the first one to say I'm a flawed preacher. I'm not going to stop preaching because I'm flawed. I'm going to keep trying every day to be more like Jesus. I don't have the kind of sin in my life that would disqualify me for ministry. I'm not trying to excuse that kind of sin, but I am saying this. Outside of those kind of disqualifications, I lose my temper too. I get impatient too. I get grumpy, just not as grumpy as, say, Brother Ed. He gets more grumpy than me. But mostly I get, and his son, you can tell it's not Father's Day. His son vigorously says amen, and so be it. And I I just want you to know, first of all, if you've had a rough week, you belong here in the church house. If you're a little bit ashamed about some of your choices this week, you belong here in the church house. Don't run away from God. That's some fine preaching. I don't think I could do better than that myself. Um, I, I want you to see there must be a grace culture in the church or what we've succeeded at is law culture. And law culture is where we have these standards that rather than teaching us of our need of God, they, they exclude others from coming into this conclave of people who have learned how to fake it. All right, enough about that. 
Here is Sarah and Abraham, and they're trying to be faith people. They, they have promise. Uh, they have place. God has put them in Canaan. This is after they're in Canaan. What are they doing in Canaan? They're moving around in the land. They're claiming it by promise. They're where they're supposed to be. They have covenant with God, uh, but the promise is not working out as they hoped it would, and it's taking too long. I don't like it when God takes too long, and I always try to tell him I'm a little bit disappointed. And you know what he says to me when I say that? That's what he says. Um, so um, he uh, is taking too long, and so they decide to do in the flesh what is supposed to be a spiritual work. It's not the uh, Some of us try to fix problems in our life, but God needs the testimony of his intervention, not the cleverness of our coping. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't do what you should do. You should do what you should do. God won't walk the land for you. But when God says he will give you a, a promise, he's going to give you a promise. And so uh, here they are. They, they decide to do in the flesh according to kind of the tradition of the times. They're going to have a surrogate motherhood. They're going to have a servant uh, have the role of ta- uh, giving birth to their adopted uh, son, or at least the son of Abraham, the half, uh, uh, the stepson of Sarah, the son of Hagar. And so this is already an awkward story, and in our modern minds, it reads difficultly. The Bible does not apologize for that. The Bible makes us face the complexity of human, shall we say in a most dignified manner, uh, human messes, human messed up status. In other words, you went to church, and the preacher said you were messed up, so that's what you need to know. Um, Here, you have them trying to figure it out, and so they don't really ask Hagar her opinion. Uh, They don't ask her if she's interested. They just allow her to stand in this role. Uh, She sleeps with Abraham. She becomes pregnant. And all of a sudden, in that time, in that household, in that place, and this matters, you you have to understand uh, the power of culture or you you shouldn't try to read history. You won't learn anything from it. You have to understand the, the unique context of that moment. All of a sudden, Hagar rises to stature in the house, and Sarah is the one who is not blessed of God. Hagar is blessed of God. She has the sign of favor upon her, and all the people, they don't care about promise. They don't care about covenant. They don't care even about presence. Uh, they don't care about faith. They care visible favor. And when that happens, Hagar all of a sudden has her status just uh, rise up. Well, she's a, she's a young girl, and uh, she doesn't know how to take all this, and so she takes it just like you would. She went from being a nobody to a somebody, somebody who nobody noticed to somebody who everybody notices. So she acts like it. This drives Sarah crazy. Sarah's filled with jealousy. It takes a certain type of maturity to see other people prosper, but that's exactly what God has called you as a church believer to do, to rejoice with them that rejoice, to mourn with them that mourn, to get out of the competition game. God saved me from churches where there's more competition in the pew than there is between the forces of heaven and hell. So there's this, there's this, this, it's hard, it's hard for me. It's hard for you. And so Sarah, she's like, I'm humiliated. I went from having stature to being a nobody. And here comes the ugly part of the story. Treat her like a servant, basically, is what Abram says. Discipline her how you see fit. In other words, remind her of her status and remind the family of her status. And so Sarah, ugly story. Don't believe the Bible makes it pretty. The Bible makes it ugly, so you'll come back after you've had a bad week. Anyway, moving along. 
Sarah, uh, in some way, punishes her, beats her in some way. Now, that's a strong verb. I doubt if they beat her in a serious way because she's pregnant and she has Abraham's son inside of her. So I, I doubt it was more than a type of inside-the-family humiliation, kind of like what my wife does to me on days that end with why. That's funny. I don't care what you say. My wife is my biggest supporter, and when I have no confidence, she believes in me. So I just want to make that clear. What she and I do like this, that's called flirting, okay, just so you know, moving along. Uh, anyway, uh, I'll deal with you later, you know what I'm saying? Um, so <laughs> I love all you guys. Uh, so uh, here, she, she brings down, she punishes Hagar. Hagar runs. She flees. That's what a lot of people do from the pain in their life. Some of us have been fleeing for years from the pain in our life. And she runs out into the desert. She's a pregnant woman without the infrastructure of, say, a caravan. That's how you survive when you cross deserts. You have infrastructure. You have, you have camels. You have uh, water uh, 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 casks. You have a way to live. She has none of that. She just runs. And now she's at a spring. She's in the heat. She's worried that she's going to die. And the angel of the Lord shows up to her. And the angel of the Lord speaks to her and says, Hagar, I want you to see this is the first time anyone has said her name um, in, in a direct addressing of her. Uh, there's no place in the Bible where uh, Abraham or Sarah, if I remember correctly, speak to her by her name. She's always referred to as a servant. God speaks to her by her name, Hagar. And listen to this rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is a question you ask to start uh, interaction you already know the answer to. So the angel says to her, where have you come from? Now, let me point out to you, God knows where she's come from. It's a rhetorical question. Then the angel says, and where are you going? Now, the angel of the Lord knows where uh, she is going. It's a rhetorical question. Here's the reality of the human condition. We will run when we don't know where we're from and we don't know where we're going. All we know is the escape of flight this is not a good plan for your life. You need to slow your roll a little bit, and you need to think about where you come from because you are a person in time, and you have a context. If you'll understand that, it'll help you understand where you need to go. And in between where you come from and where you're going is a divine encounter. Let me say it again. In between where you come from and where you're going, there should be a divine encounter. God will not force himself upon you. He will stand on the edge of your world, and he will ask you a question he already knows the answer to in the hope that you are ready to talk about it. And if you're not ready to talk about it, he won't force himself upon you. If you're not ready to be vulnerable with God, he won't in some way force his way into your life, your heart, your mind, your spirit. He will simply stand on the edge of your life and say, are you ready to talk about things? And if you are ready to have a divine encounter between where you're coming from and where you're going, then at that moment, the word of God will be given to you and you can be changed. I wonder where you're at today. The Spirit of the Lord might be speaking to someone here today. He's not going to force his way in. He wants to know if you're ready to talk about it. 
And if you're ready to talk about it, he will change everything in your life. And so uh, here, this young girl, she is uh, not even really uh, of their their household in the way of someone who was born into it. Uh, she is, if we understand correctly, an Egyptian who was given to um, uh, Sarai from her time in Egypt. And let's be honest, uh, Hagar is trapped in a system where she feels as though she is invisible. She has no rights. She has no dignity. She has no freedom. She has no choice. And she's had enough. And she's sick of it all. She's not the only one. Uh, there are many daughters of Hagar. There are many daughters of uh, Abraham. There's many daughters of Isaac and Jacob. There's many daughters, uh, whatever your background is, who are in a system where they feel invisible. They have no rights, no dignity, no freedom, or no choice. And it's very hard to be a nobody. It's very hard to be invisible. Uh, it's very hard to feel as though your contribution is never going to be acknowledged. It's very, very hard. And so here you see Hagar ask herself, as it were, uh, whether or not she's ready uh, to talk about her situation. And of course, she answers uh, Jehovah. The Bible says in verse 13, uh, thereafter, Hagar, well, let me, let me back up there. She answers, I, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Verse number eight, Hagar says, I'm running away from my mistress. And the angel says, return to your mistress and act as you should. Per, evidently, Hagar had been a little bit vain in her uh, blessing and favor. Go back, act as you should. I will make of you a great nation. Now notice this. This is important. What is the promise that has been given to Abraham and Sarah that he would make of their seed a great nation? Hagar has no reason to feel like she has inheritance rights to that promise of the Lord. But what is the promise of the Lord that he gives her? It's the same promise. Some of you feel like other people in your life have been anointed, but you don't know if God would anoint you. You feel like other people, your grandfather had a ministry, your mother was a prayer warrior, but you never really found your place. You were too busy doing other things, but I want to speak to you. You might be surprised that if you would call upon the name of the Lord, there's a promise for you. There is an anointing for you. There is a ministry for you. And so this same promise that has been revered within this family, that in the culture of this family, the, the daily life of it, the talking over dinner, why are we wandering? Why are we believing? Why are we living this way? Children, let me tell you why. Servants, let me tell you why. Friends, nephews, let me tell you why. This is why we're living the way we are living. Because God said he would make of us a great nation. Her whole time with the family has had a promise, as it were, dangled over her. And at this moment, God says to I'm going to give you the same promise. Here she goes from thinking nobody sees her. No one knows her circumstance. She goes to getting the same promise that Abraham and Sarah has themselves. And so I want you to see what she does in response to this. The Lord says, yes, you are pregnant and your baby will be a son and you are to name him Ishmael. God hears because God has heard your 
your woes. I want you to see verse 13. Thereafter, Hagar spoke of Jehovah, for it was he who appeared to her as the God who looked upon me. In the King James, it is the God that sees me. Uh, It is this manner in which she speaks of God. I thought I was alone, but he knew my name. I thought I was trapped, but he knew what I was running from, and he knew where I was stuck between. I thought no one understood my contribution, but then God spoke to me. Hagar, nor Sarah, nor Abraham have a name for God at this point. The first time you will hear Abraham refer to God uh, in a title or a name is later after he meets Melchizedek, after he has defeated the kings who captured Lot. And he will, having met the king of the city of peace, Melchizedek, Abraham, for the first time in his life, will refer to God by a title or a name. He will say to the kings, I have made a covenant with the Most High God. That's the first time you have a title through the patriarchs given to God. I have made a covenant with the Most High God. Hagar doesn't have a name for him either, but she decides after this moment she's going to give him a name. This is the name she gives to the God who met her in the wilderness, the God who saw her in her confusion, fear, hate, and anger, and rage at a mistreatment. This is the God who saw her there. She calls him El Roy, which is the God who sees me. I've come to tell somebody here today, God sees you. You felt unappreciated for a very long time. God sees you. You felt lost in the shuffle of your life. God sees you. You felt as though circumstances have always worked out against you. I'm here to tell you God sees you. And he will meet you in your circumstances, and he will ask you if you're ready to talk about it. And if you're ready to talk about it, I want you to know it's time for you to become vulnerable to God. Slow down the rushing in your life and become vulnerable to God. Behold, he says, I stand at the door and knock. And if you would like to commune with me, you're going to have to go to that door. You're going to have to open that door. But if you will, I will come in and have fellowship with you. The Bible says in verse 14, later, that well was named the well of the living one who sees me. I thought I was alone. I thought no one saw me. I thought no one was looking. But I want you to know, first of all, to all of our mothers, I want you to know God sees you. And then to everyone else who has ever felt isolated, I want you to know God sees you. God sees you as you are. God sees past the camouflage of your life. God loves you as a parent who knows about the hang-ups and loves you anyway. You are his flesh and you are his blood, and he wants to walk with you. There's no sense having pretenses with God. Samuel said it best. The Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Can I have a witness in this house? 
You have searched me, O Lord, David writes in Psalms 139, and you know me. You know when I sit, you know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Behold, before a a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. I'm here to tell you, God knows your name. I said, God knows your name. We have a song we sing here at the church that goes like this. You know my name. And then they go on to say, oh, how he walks with me. I sing that by myself. There's no people there to think I can't sing, so I sing it. Oh, how he walks with me. He talks with me. Says that I'm his own. He knows my name. I've come to tell somebody he knows your name. He knows how you felt when you woke up this morning. He knows the bad dream you had recently. He knows the fears that you're going to be alone forever. He knows the reality that you feel as though you've been forgotten. I'm here to tell you, he knows your name. It's actually more personal than that. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He has bottled up every tear you've ever cried. <laughs> Psalms 23 and 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you shall go. I will guide you with my eye. God sees you. The greatest peace and comfort of life is to be known, perfectly known, and perfectly loved by God. And through Jesus Christ, we are perfectly known and we are perfectly loved more clearly than we even know ourselves. He was not just your creator and knows you to your very elements. He he walked in your stead and he carried your sins and there was no temptation there was no sin that he did not fight and win for you so you who have failed at the same temptation can be covered by his righteousness there is no loss that he did not bear for you so that when you bear it imperfectly you can be covered by his righteousness To be known of God is the height of every uh, sojourner's purpose and walk. Uh, the highest thing we can say about any of us is that we pursue God and that he perfectly knows us. Our musicians are coming. I'm almost done. There's a passage in Zephaniah I love. I think it's one of the most maternal pa passages uh, that shows us uh, God, I, I think. We typically celebrate him as a father, as we should. Um, but it's not simply uh, the dominance of the father. There's also the nurturing of, of the mother. And in the role of, the, uh, of Jesus Christ, we are, both, we are completed in our approach to God. And so you see in him both God 
as the eternal one and the creator and in the son of God, Jesus, as the one who covers our iniquities, you see the completeness. But this image, Zephaniah 3, Zephaniah 3 and 7, uh, the Lord says that he will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will quiet you with his love. It's like a mother would shush a child who is unsettled and can't get comfortable and hold the child very close and put the, their, their, their face against the child's little, little bald head there. You know, all children are bald uh, except for the ones who aren't. That's a deep thought if you'd like to write that down. And they just nuzzle that child and they shush that child. It's a very maternal image. Uh, the Lord will take great delight in you and he will quiet you with his love. Psalms 33, 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. He understands and he sees every need. And so I want to I want to end today with uh, a couple things. First of all, Isaiah makes an appeal to the people who are worshiping idols. And he tells the story in chapter number 44 of Isaiah. He tells the story of how a craftsman would would craft an idol and then revere an idol and then worship that idol. And he gives us the image in Isaiah 44 of a blacksmith who is making tools. And uh, he has a tool now and, and how a wood carver will take that tool and go out and pick wood. And uh, some of that wood he would use to light a fire and that fire would warm him. And some of that wood he would use to cook his meal and that bread would fill him. And then some of that wood he would, he would take that tool from the blacksmith and he would begin to carve an idol and uh, the same substance that had warmed him and the same substance that had uh, in some way fed him, cooked his bread, uh, he now is going to worship. And that's his solution for the emptiness of the human condition where an individual feels like there has to be more. And so they look around and they construct a God. Uh, this is idolatry. And in the Old Testament, it's very much an image-based thing. In the New Testament, it's, it's similar but different. We still take uh, that which warmed us and fed us, but then we make a God out of that thing. It might be career. It might be business. It might be fame or fortune. But whatever warmed you and fed you, you if you think about it, you will... Uh, turn that into an idol and you'll think that's going to fix me. If I had this certain amount of money, that's going to fix me, fix me. That money would have fed you and warmed you and now you're going to use money to fix you. That career would have warmed you and fed you. Now you're going to let that fix you. That's not how it works. Um, this person now makes this God that cannot see them because it's the very thing that warmed them and fed them. It was not deity. It was an image. And they worship and they revere it. And then Isaiah uh, and this is all in 44. I put the extended reading in your notes. Um, he says this. Uh, then he takes what's left of the wood and he makes his God a carved idol. He falls down in front of it, worshiping and praying to it. Rescue me, he says. You are my God. Here's this, the thing that fed him and warmed him. Rescue me. You are my God. Whatever warmed you and fed you is something you use, not something you worship. That's why, let me throw this in real quick, and I'll you know, send you an invoice later on in the week. That's why I'm glad you have a job, but the job should serve you. You should not serve the job. Do you see? You should serve God. I'm, I'm glad you have hobbies. You need hobbies. I have hobbies. I love my hobbies. Um, but the hobby should serve me. I should not serve the hobby. 
you work all your life at a corporation and um, I'm all for that. Uh, corporations are, uh, you know, they add value. That's why their stocks are worth money. Um, so uh, you get it, you understand, but ultimately you can't make that a deity to you. You, you, you. That has to serve you. You can't just serve it. And so it is this, this, uh, this reality that I save my heart for my creator. I, I save my innermost being for the one who breathe life into me and here's this individual there they're bowing down to this idol of wood they're saying rescue me you are my god and isaiah said this is just stupid seriously that's the nje translation but basically he's like this is just dumb this is not going to work this is not how you're constructed their eyes are closed and they cannot see who are we talking about well first the idol it's made out of wood but secondly the idol worshiper Their minds are shut and they cannot think. Who? Well, firstly, the idol, but secondly, the idol worshiper. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect why it's just a block of wood. I burnt half of it for heat and used half to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a god? Should I bow down to worship a piece of wood? The poor deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts something that can't help him at all. Yet he can't bring himself to ask, is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? So, with God, there is only a right approach to God, and that is of worship. Now, oftentimes the same person who will make an idol out of a career will then approach God and ask God to serve him or her. Do this for me, do that for me. This, is, this, is, this is shows you how all we like sheep go astray. We turn each one to our own way. And yet God loves us. And He's patient with us. And He forgives us. And He shows up time and time again and says, Hey, do you, where are you coming from? God knows where you're coming from. Hey, where are you going? God knows where you're going. You're the one who's confused, not God. I've come to tell everybody God sees you. Peter, Peter had high ambitions for his uh, role in the kingdom of God. He had boldness to ask, Lord, I want to be executive vice president. Basically, that's what he asked for. I want to be on your right hand, and um, I want everyone to know it. And it was an ambitious family. That's a good thing. God can use your ambition. Just make sure, uh, you know, you kind of keep it in check. And uh, even their mother's like, mm, my boys, right and left hand, right hand of, the, of, of, of Jesus. When you come into your kingdom, you get the idea. And so uh, here you see this moment where Peter, he has spoken boldly. He's like, I don't care what these other people do. They can betray you. I will never betray you. And Jesus is like, well, let's see. Let's see how that works out for you. And um, so Peter, what does he do? He gets in an awkward situation and he... Isn't it interesting how life can put you in situations you haven't prepped for? <laughs> you just haven't prepped for this situation. And, and Peter denies the Lord three times, fulfilling the prophecy of the Lord. And then the Bible says he follows from afar. Uh, that's what a lot of people do. When, you're, when you don't approve of your life, you know you're not living right, you follow from afar. As though Jesus is nearsighted. Maybe if I don't get close to the front, the Lord won't bother me about what I've been doing. The Lord is not myopic. 
He is not just nearsighted. He's farsighted too. He's all-sighted. Peter's following from afar because, you know, surely Jesus has ministry myopia and he'll just see what's right in front of him. And uh, between the houses of judgment, the soldiers are taking Jesus. And uh, Peter is following from afar, ashamed of himself. I talked tough. I couldn't back it up. Look at me now. I'm embarrassed. Jesus stops between as he's being moved by the temple guard from one location of judgment to another location of judgment. I think it's between a temple and um, a Herod maybe or a temple and a Pilate's residence. But in this moment, Jesus sees Peter and he stops and he looks at him. They make this eye contact. They, they make this connection. Um, and then perhaps if you would imagine the scene with me, uh, maybe one of the temple guards pushed Jesus to make him go on. But in that moment, Peter knew that Jesus saw him. Does Jesus see me when I'm doing bad or does he just see me when I'm doing good? Does Jesus know that I'm tore up inside or does he just notice me when I'm down in the front getting blessing? Does Jesus know when I haven't had a good week or does he just love me when I've had a good week? Is this a performance-based relationship where every week I try to be good enough to deserve love? If that is how you are serving God, it's no wonder you are church miserable because you have a schizophrenic salvation. Now I'm saved. Now I'm not. Now I'm saved. Now I'm not. Now I'm saved. Now I'm not. This is not perfect peace. This is not love casts out fear. This is schizophrenia. Yes, I said it. Save yourself from that. Let's settle this right now. His arms are big enough to wrap all the way around you. His heart is large enough to love you in your trouble. Don't give up on him. You say, I'm not doing what I should do. All right, let's admit that and let's keep turning our heart toward God. He sees you. He loves you. Let's keep coming to worship. Let's keep, we don't have to lie about it. Don't be dishonest. Don't tell people you pray seven hours a day when you know you sin seven times a week. Don't do it. It's a waste. It's a lie. It's toxic Christianity. Be honest. I need to do better than I've been doing. But I'm here to say he's still my salvation. I need to pray more than I've been praying. I know it. You know it. But I'm here to say uh, he is my salvation. So Peter, you know, maybe it was a look of judgment, you think. That's what Jesus gave Peter. That's why he goes out and weeps bitterly. Uh, it's not my experience that when people are judgmental to you that it makes you weep bitterly. You defend yourself when someone's judgmental against you. Do a test with your wife or your husband. Come home one day. Don't really do this. Just laugh when I get to what I tell you to do, okay? Go home and just randomly attack them and see what they do. They will always defend themselves. You walk in and say, I don't know why this house is a mess. Well, the first thing that happens is um, your nose begins to bleed. I don't know why that happens, but it's like, what? <laughs> okay, if you're attacked, you defend yourself. But when you're loved, it breaks your heart. And the tears begin to flow. And you say, I'm so sorry, I wanted to do better. This is one thing I've learned. Uh, this is just, you know, how shall we call this? This is like social judo. If you attack, they defend. If you defend, they humble. And so if you speak for them, a lot of times they will attack themselves harder than you would have done it. But if you attack them, they will defend themselves and refuse your point 100%. Jesus must have looked at Peter in a way that broke Peter's heart. 
It wasn't just judgment. There may have been some disappointment. There may have been some judgment. I'll leave that to eternity. But I'll tell you this. The Lord then answers the issue of what kind of a look it was when he meets Peter after the resurrection. And he says to him, Peter, do you love me? You see, Peter thought he could slip out the side door of the church. That's what a lot of you guys do on Sunday. You've got it timed perfectly. You get here a little bit late so you don't have the preacher out front. And then as soon as we get done, you are out the front or out the side door before the preacher could get you. But today, I'm chasing your hide down and tackling you in the driveway, in the parking lot. I'm going to tackle you right in the driveway. And just for that, I'm going to put a big... No, I'm not either. Anyway. He thinks he could slip out, slip out the side door of ministry. I'm just going to slip away. Jesus shows up. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Good. Feed my sheep. Okay. Feel better now. Peter, do you love me? Ooh, we're doing repetition. This is nerve-wracking. You want to freak your spouse out? Do repetition unexplained. They won't know what's happening. Peter's like, what? 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 Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And Peter stops having an opinion. And he says, look, I I don't know. I thought I knew my heart. What was the problem? He thought he knew his heart last time. And what did he do? He denied the Lord three times. Why? He thought he knew his heart. Now he's saying, I love you. He thought he lived his heart. But on the third time, this time, he realizes maybe he don't know his heart. And he says, Lord, this is complete surrender. This is spiritual surrender. Not my way, your way. I don't know the path. I don't know whether to come in or go out. You know. You know, you know. And so here you have Peter saying, Lord, you tell me. And the Lord says, feed my lambs. As if to say, you're admitting weakness. Now don't forget to serve weak people. You're admitting your weakness. Now don't forget to include weak people. We don't want to be a church that doesn't include weak people. We want first church culture to include weak people. Remember, Peter, you finally have surrendered. You don't know your heart. You're surrendering to me. Now I want you to remember this moment of weakness because there's going to be there's going to be people who need to be ministered to in their weakness going forward. And so Peter sees that even in the moment on the edge of the light, hiding in his shame, God sees him. And I want to say to all of you today, and I'm done, I want to say this. First of all, wherever you're at, there's a good chance that I, as the preacher, don't know the details. Whatever you're living through, there's a good chance that brothers and sisters in the church don't know all the details. There's a good chance we have not seen how many times you've cried. There's a good chance we have not been with you when you wanted to put your fist through the wall. (laughs) Trying to include everybody here. Uh, But I want to say this. God was there. And he loves you. And he sees you. And you need to stand with Hagar. And you need to say, Elroy, the God who sees me. Not just when things are perfect, but every day. Not just when I'm doing right, but every day. I want to be in the kingdom of God. I want to be used of you. I want to be included. I only have a few loaves and fishes, but I want to be included you see me. I want everyone here in this house to feel this deep in your spirit. God is invested in you. Stand with me all across the house. 
We're an altar church. We always make time at the end for people to come forward with needs. Uh, I know many of you aren't comfortable with that yet because of the last year. That's, that's okay. You can stay where you are if you would rather. But if you're here and you need healing in your body, I'd like you to uh, maybe uh, believe that obeying the scripture and being anointed with oil uh, could have an impact on your faith as your faith is joined with others. If you have needs in your family and your finances and in, in your stress level, in your depression, in your anxiety, well, I'm getting real now, aren't I? <laughs> Whatever that testimony of your reality is, I want you to believe that in this house right now as the Spirit of the Lord moves among us, I want you to believe that, that God will meet you and that God will touch you. Lord, I'm praying for every person in this house. I'm praying for every individual that has done, uh, followed through as it were with making time for you. They've they started their week out the right way. They got themselves to your house. The people who are watching online, Lord, I pray right now that we would be aware, first of all, of how near you are to us. And I'm praying that we perceive your love. We would sense your embrace. Don't let us be blinded to the reality of God in our lives. Don't let us be limited to a type of spiritual ignorance where we cannot perceive what you're doing. But Lord, let us know in our heart that you see us and once we realize that we'll begin to see your hand working everywhere we will begin to see the way you have made in our wildernesses we will begin to see how you've provisioned us and protected us how you've opened doors for us how you've given us of your divine favor be with your people in Jesus name I pray amen right where you are turn it to a place of worship if you want to step out, please do. We are an altar church. We want to keep that in our worship culture. God bless you. Let the worship team lead us deeper into praise and worship here today as we exalt the Lord in this house. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.